Hey, this is Annie, and you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. Some of you might have heard about a little show called Doctor Who. If you haven't, it's a sci-fi show on the BBC that first started all the way back in 1963. And it follows a time lord known as the Doctor, or Doctor Who, and his adventures through space and time on his blue police box spaceship called the TARDIS, usually with one or more human companions. Now, I had a friend that was a huge fan of Doctor Who when we were kids, like the old school episodes. And I owe her for introducing it to me, even though I fought against it tooth and nail. Because of a very elaborate prank my older brother played on me that involved special effects, that old Roswell alien dissection video, lights and sound effects, I was until semi-recently terrified of space aliens in pop culture. Like, I only just saw E.T. a couple of years ago terrified. As you can imagine, this made my life as a sci-fi fan interesting. The only movie I ever walked out of, by the way, was Lost in Space, the one that had Matt LeBlanc in it. (laughs) Not because it was bad, but because I was so scared. All of this to say, when I was sleeping over at my friend's place and she'd leave a tape of Doctor Who playing late at night and fall asleep, I would lie awake, terrified, in spite of the bad effects, horrified by the Daleks, just waiting for it to be over. But... I've since overcome my fear, and I am a Doctor Who fan. For a little bit of of backstory context, while we're talking about this at all, since the show started in 1963, it's had three sort of eras, the latest one beginning with new episodes in 2005. One of the things about this character, the Doctor, is that the showrunners have a really neat story thing that also explains why the actors keep changing, the actors playing the role. One of the Doctor's alien abilities is that if he dies, he regenerates into a new body with a different personality, although some personality traits do remain the same. New actor, same character, it all fits in the storyline. Fans call whatever iteration of the Doctor they're talking about, the 10th Doctor, the 11th Doctor, so on. And I keep saying he because until recently, the character has been played by a white male. But new episodes started airing this week with a new doctor played by a woman, Jodie Whittaker. And this is a big deal for a couple of reasons. As of 2014, only 14% of mainstream sci-fi and fantasy films had a female protagonist. And most of those roles, those female roles, are for either one-dimensional characters or really, really serious characters. But one of the most important traits of the Doctor is he, now she, is funny, goofy, can joke around. A different type of sci-fi protagonist than most women get to play. Think Black Widow, Gamora, Nebula, Wonder Woman, pretty much every sci-fi movie. Very serious, um, but not so in this case. 8.2 million people tuned in to watch the premiere with the new Doctor, the highest viewership in 10 years. Despite (laughs) all the fear-mongering about how having a woman would ruin the show, the response was generally positive. 
The character's also getting a Barbie doll, by the way, which apparently led to some confusion between American and British fans when the description included the word braces. Braces in the UK means suspenders, um, not the, the teeth contraption that it means here in the US. So the description was updated to suspenders. But in the UK, suspenders means garter belt. Hilarious confusion with words. The actress playing the the Dr. Whitaker said of all of this conversation about um, her being the doctor, all of the conversation that has generated, quote, what will be brilliant is when this kind of casting isn't so exciting because TV is so representative of the society we all live in today. And the same is true for people of color, a casting direction that people also want to see for the show. In terms of a broader impact outside of Doctor Who viewers, this could help open doors for other types of sci-fi and fantasy media to have a more dynamic female in the leading role. And the importance of seeing that on screen, as we've talked about before, shouldn't be undervalued. And it could even have ripple effects out to other media we consume outside of sci-fi and fantasy. If we look at sci-fi as a genre, as a whole, it is a genre that can reimagine a world outside of the one we live in, outside of the structures of racism and sexism. And it can give us an idea of what that world might look like, what a more inclusive world could look like. And this is one of my favorite classic episodes that you're about to hear because it talks about the power of sci-fi to be a tool for change. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we're going to talk about two topics that might not sound like they go together, but in fact work so perfectly in tandem, and that is social justice and science fiction. And thankfully, since, to be perfectly honest, I'm not a science fiction expert. Caroline, are are you a science fiction expert? I can't say that I'm a science fiction expert. As much as I have watched some science fiction movies, I cannot claim to be an expert. And even though, Caroline, I have dressed up as Ripley for (laughs) Halloween, sadly that doesn't, you know, that that even still doesn't make me an expert. But thankfully, we have someone so much more knowledgeable in the realms of both social justice and science fiction to talk to us today about all this fun stuff. And that is online editor of the feminism and pop culture nonprofit that we cite all the time on the podcast, Bitch Media, and also host of the feminist podcast, Propaganda, Sarah Merck. Welcome, Sarah. Hi, Kristen. Hi, Caroline. It's so Hi. great to be here. Oh, well, it's so great to have you. Well, so, Sarah, to get things kicked off, let's start first by talking about your specific interest in science fiction. What do you love about it as a form of entertainment, and how has it informed your personal perspectives or philosophies or even activism? Well, first of all, science fiction is just fun. I love reading science fiction and I like watching science fiction movies because it's a really good time. Um, You can sort of get deep and philosophical about it, but honestly, 
I just like a story that's well told that has an interesting world behind it. You know, I'm somebody, I grew up reading a lot of fantasy and a lot of science fiction. So, you know, super mainstream stuff like Lord of the Rings as fantasy and then for science fiction like Dune and Ender's Game. And the way that they sort of prompted me to think about how other worlds could be is just great for your imagination. You know, kids love science fiction, I think, and fantasy because um, it ties into our imagination so much and helps us sort of see what other worlds could be and helps us imagine a world beyond our own. And as I've gotten older, science fiction is a great venue for discussing our own culture and our own society. So as we're reading about alien worlds in really good science fiction, it's a reflection of what's happening in our own society. And so often in, in the science fiction books that I love, you're sort of introduced to a culture and there's some kind of observer, like an alien who's dropped onto a planet who's observing the culture and reflecting on it. And what they're commenting on is stuff that you'll see a lot in our society or that pushes us to rethink the things that, that we take for granted as normal and instead see them as, oh, this could function totally different. Or if an alien landed here on Earth, what would they be appalled by or what would they think was really interesting? Well, I think from maybe more of an outsider perspective for people maybe sitting more uh, where Caroline and I are who aren't really familiar, like in depth with the genre who, you know, we've seen Star Wars, we've seen Alien, things like that. But it seems like for a long time, particularly in those more mainstream presentations of science fiction, it hasn't exactly been a haven for diverse representation. So just kind of wondering how the genre and also reader's awareness, this kind of perspective, excuse me, that you're bringing to this, how that has evolved beyond a white, cisgender, male-centric canon. Actually, it's not a new thing. I was, you know, I I sort of came to this reading um, books like Dune and Ender's Game when I was a teenager and then later discovered writers like Ursula Le Guin and Octavia Butler who when I just picked up their books, I thought they were writing today. And it turns out they were writing in the 1970s and the 1980s. So a sort of trend of linking social justice and science fiction has been really happening for almost 40 years as uh, in the book world. Um, one, of, one of my favorite science fiction books is by Ursula K. Le Guin, and it's called The Dispossessed. And this was published in 1974. So Think about what's going on in 1974. We've just had Roe v. Wade. We have huge civil rights movement activism and women's movement activism. And this book comes along, and it's about a planet uh, that's a totally egalitarian planet, an entire world that's sort of run on um, the principles of anarchy, of mutual aid and no government. So no no police, um, no prisons, no, no centralized government, just everyone helping each other in the ways that they want to. And, you know, a person from this planet goes to another world, and that world is very sexist, and he sort of runs into all these sorts of cultural problems around poverty and inequality in the world. Um, and this book, The Dispossessed, it, it is mainstream science fiction. It won, in the year it came out, it won the Hugo. It won the Nebula Awards. Those are the biggest awards in science fiction. Um, it won the World Fantasy Award, Award, and it won the National Book Award. So that's as mainstream as it gets. And this is a book that's really clearly discussing inequality, that's discussing um, other options for governance, that's clearly putting sexism front and center. 
But what's funny about this book, I have a I have a um, edition of it that was published by Harper just recently in the last few years. And none of that stuff that I just talked about shows up on the cover text of the book. So if you look at this book in the store, what it says on the cover, it's Ursula K. Le Guin's The Dispossessed. And then the description of the book on the cover is an astonishing tale of one man's search for utopia. And I'm like, this book is not about one man's search for utopia. This book is about like uh, sexism and classism and uh, physics, as well as a lot of bureaucracy and politics. But what it's not is like one brilliant man alone against the world searching for utopia. And so I think that there's, a, I think that there's definitely still a disconnect between the way that science fiction books are often seen and sold by publishers and the, the sort of revolutionary content that's actually within them. And that's something you see in Octavia Butler's books too. Octavia Butler is, an, an, uh, she, she's a black woman, science fiction writer, and lots of her stories center on black characters and people of color. But she had a lot of trouble in, in her life of publishers whitewashing the covers of her books, of putting, um, you know, white people on the covers of books that are about characters who are not white. And so there's, there's, has been that problem with how science fiction is sort of seen as, as a genre for white cisgender dudes when a lot of the stuff that is written about is actually uh, very revolutionary. Well, and we've also, speaking to gender, I've noticed in recent years conversations about the representation of gender in science fiction, but particularly to what you're talking about in the marketing of science fiction. So there have been those uh, those kind of viral blog posts of the the gender flipped sci-fi covers where you know men are doing the typical female poses, which kind of leads to this question of the intersection of feminism and sci-fi. Where where and how do those worlds collide? Well, I think science fiction sort of gives us a way to talk about our own culture and reflect on what we think of as normal. And it also gives us really good tools for sort of rethinking what we think we know. And so sort of the way that feminism and science fiction intersect is that when you hear these stories about future societies or future cultures um, or people visiting our own world and being confused by it, it makes you question what rules in society you take for granted and what's actually not like a biological imperative, but is just the culture that we've built. And so, for example, in Ursula Le Guin's books, since I was just talking about her, um, there's often, there's, there's planets where there is no gender difference. Or in Octavia Butler's books, she has a book where there's um, a whole race of species where there's a third gender. And so that pushes readers, even young readers or old readers, to rethink, wait a second, wait, there can be a planet where there's no gender? What does this say about what does this say about what gender is? Well, speaking of these social issues, in a recent bitch article and on propaganda, Walidra and Marisha talked about how, quote, all organizing is science fiction. That sounds a little bit out there, but actually the theory is not that out there. Could you talk a little bit about what this means? 
Yeah, sure. Lena Marisha is a really great scholar, activist, professor, poet. She has a lot of jobs. And she she is most recently the co-editor with um, an an organizer named Adrienne Marie Brown of an anthology called Octavia's Brood, Science Fiction Stories from Social Justice Movements, which comes out this spring from AK Press. And the whole idea of this anthology is to collect stories of visionary fiction. And visionary fiction... Um, is, is, a, is a term to sort of differentiate it from science fiction that doesn't deal with sort of rethinking the world and, and feminist issues and social justice issues and focuses on basically how can fiction help us rethink the world that we live in. Um, and they call science fiction an exploring ground, a laboratory to try new tactics, strategies, and vision without real-world costs. So you can kind of explore in your imagination what could society look like? What could the world we live in be like? Um, since we've been talking a lot about uh, Ursula Le Guin, in, in her article in, in Bitch, uh, which is called Rewriting the Future, Walida and Marisha quotes Ursula Le Guin's speech that she gave last year at the National Book Awards ceremony. And you might have heard of this speech because it, it went viral. It was a really big deal. And in the, in the speech, she talks about um, basically that we need writers who can force us to, to re-examine ourselves and to rethink the world that we think about and who can, as she says, remember freedom. And Le Guin goes on to say, we live in capitalism. Its power seems inescapable. But then so did the divine right of kings. Any human power can be resisted and changed by human beings. And Walida writes in her article that that is precisely why we need science fiction, that it allows us to imagine possibilities outside of what exists today. And that's powerful. And so as an organizing tool, you can use science fiction to say, okay, we don't like the world we live in right now. There's all these problems with it. Where could we look to as an answer? Well, in one of the exercises that you all talked about on um, both on the the panel that you hosted and on the propaganda episode that she was on was examining existence science fiction or even just pop culture like The Simpsons and sort of using existing science fiction to reimagine that. And one of the examples you talked about was with Star Wars, remembering the droids. What about the droids? (laughs) Or another example on the Octavia's Brood blog was uh, of the orcs in Lord of the Rings collectively rising up because if they rise up and organize then of course Mordor would be no more so I I was just curious to get your thoughts on um, not only creating new science fiction but maybe using existing science fiction as and reimagining that as another kind of accessible tool especially for again for for newbies like Caroline and me who might not be so familiar. I love that idea of supporting the striking orcs, you know, that's it's really exciting. <laughs> then with the little, little folding picket signs. <laughs> yeah, it's kind like, of cute. Orc, orc freedom now. Um, well, there is a, you know, with science fiction, there's, uh, there's a very healthy tradition of, of fan fiction of people writing their own stories about the shows. Um, and that's especially apparent when sort of the storylines don't pan out the way you want to, or when you sort of see characters and you want to know more from them. Um, I mean, a, a lot of our current sort of culture of fan fiction, which is so robust and so many people are publishing their own stories, a lot of it begins with Star Trek, with people writing their own sort of reimaginings of of Star Trek episodes because they wanted to see different storylines develop. And I think that that's 
great that, you know, if you want to see more from these characters or, um, or different people who were left out of the stories or you want to see what would happen if they went, if they were suddenly confronted with their own problems, fan fiction is a great way to explore those things. Well, in terms of exploring different themes, I'm interested in what you think in terms of how science fiction in general and visionary fiction in particular affect our views on things like gender, race, age, and even society at large, and how that might work differently from reading just, you know, quote unquote, regular contemporary fiction about recognizable systems and lifestyles. Well, I think that science fiction personally, like, draws me in in a way that contemporary fiction doesn't always do. You know, I'm so drawn into these juicy stories of of other worlds and other cultures that it kind of like slips it slips me into the to to rethinking my own society instead of hitting me over the head with it in a super heavy-handed way. And I think a really good book to bring up in this example is Octavia Butler's book, uh, Kindred. This is probably her best-known book. You might have read it in school. A lot of people read it in school. It was published in 1979, and it's about a black woman in the United States who falls back in time. So she's an accidental time traveler. And I could see you know, kids get, getting excited about this, like, ooh, it's a time travel story. I get excited about this. I want to know about her time travel story. So she falls back in time to the 19th century in Maryland, where she meets her ancestors who were enslaved people. And the narrative really makes you think about sort of how, uh, how these stories can make us imagine a different future. That like a black female time traveler shows up in a slaveholding state and says that in the future the slaves are free. Like, that would sound as wild to them as it would if a time traveler showed up now and said that in the future we have no prisons. You know, so I think that that kind of narrative, instead of handing kids a book and telling them, you know, that this is going to be about American history, which, you know, not all of them might be into, you say this is a book about a time traveler exploring alternate pasts and reimagining the future. And you're like, wow, cool, how exciting. So I just think personally, I think that a lot of those sort of Elements of science fiction really draw in readers in a way that that fiction certainly can, um, but that I think is is powerful to science fiction as a genre. And that sort of all the limits are off. You know, if you're going to explore another world, you can make that culture look like whatever you want. You don't have to fit it into our existing idea of what of what the world looks like. So you can remake ideas of gender and sexuality and class because hey, it's another world. You can make it look however you want. Yeah, it seems like the the genre can be so powerful by removing all of the familiar signposts that might otherwise be distracting. Say, if you're reading a book about a person in New York, you're like, well, no, that's that's not how New York is. Whereas in science fiction, you can't say, no, this moon world is not how <laughs> moon world should be. Yeah, because exactly. that rule book doesn't exist, which is really, really neat. Um as I was reading about this visionary fiction and these possible uh, future worlds, utopias, things like that, I also, it got me thinking about how this may or may not at all relate to the current popularity of dystopian YA fiction. It seems like uh, kids these days and adults these days <laughs> are really into. I don't. It wouldn't necessarily constitute science fiction, but it's still reimagining worlds and bringing up similar kinds of issues from time to time. So I was just wondering what your insights were on that. 
I think it I think it counts as science fiction that there's a lot of sort of dystopian YA out there right now that deals with a lot of these these issues. And I think they're popular because um, they feel a little bit familiar often. You know, it's teenage it's the characters are often teenagers who are sort of going through teenage troubles of trying to fit in and trying to deal with their parents, but they've got the added issues of they're in a dystopian society that's falling apart and everyone's about to kill each other. And so, you know, there's there's a couple good examples of this. There's a there's an author I really like named Nalo Hopkinson. Um, and and their work focuses on sort of teens in a in a in a slightly changed future society where suddenly everything starts getting weird. You know, there's um, so, like sort of weird and powerful forces that show up and everyone gets weird different powers. Um, and that it, But it's actually a story about sort of being a teenager and grappling with the world and trying to figure out where you fit in and trying to deal with the stuff that, that you're handed at, at birth, like, um, like your race and your parents and your family, and trying to fit that into this weird, changing world. Another example I really like is um, a BBC show called Misfits, which is about a group of rather surly teenagers uh, who are doing community service. They're like on probation and they've been sentenced to community service. And then there's a freak lightning storm and they all inherit um, really bad superpowers. And so they like have to deal with having these kind of cursed superpowers and how they've changed their bodies while they're still trying to like get along with each other and get along with the world. And I think that that's a story that like young people really relate to where you're both trying to deal with you know, your body changing and, and your social situation changing and trying to figure out how you fit into the world, which also makes you reflect on why the world is the way it is and how a lot of it is really screwed up. Well, so we've talked a lot about imagining and how books like this help us imagine alternatives. And I'm interested in hearing about some of the things that you are imagining because, you know, um, we've seen a lot of elements of past science fiction come true in our world. We have touchscreens. We do have Big Brother in the NSA. Um, And I was wondering what elements of social justice, science fiction, or really any science fiction uh, you've seen come true or that you might predict or hope come true in the future? Oh, geez. This is a tough question because the stuff I read about is really dark <laughs> and you don't want it to come true. It's often more like like a path that I don't. I hope we kind of don't take. A lot of the science fiction I read is sort of deals with uh, a, a earth or an earth-like planet where there's been massive climate change and so much of the race has died off and how do these scrappy survivors come together in in this horrible time and so I hope that that doesn't happen you know that I that sort of when I think about the future I can't help but get a little or very cynical you know it doesn't like touch screens aside I feel like you know as as a as a human race, we're not going to a, to a good place in the next hundred years because of the way that we've been treating the planet and building our societies on inequality. And so in these, the works that I read are often more uh, of a cautionary tale of things you don't want to have happen. So, for example, a classic example of this would be Margaret Atwood's A Handmaid's Tale, which a lot of people read in school, um, which is about a very controlled and police society where 
women's reproduction is is tightly controlled, and there are certain women who are assigned to be breeders, basically. Um, and this speaks a lot to our current politics around reproductive rights, policing of women's bodies, and the lack of, of women to have the ability to choose their reproductive health care. And so when you, re- when you read a story, that, like A Handmaid's Tale, that envisions what this is going to look like 100 years from now, or if things get to the extreme, it makes you... It makes me, at least, reflect on current politics and be like, oh, geez, if this is where it's going, we need to stop it right now. And so I think a lot of these stories can be sort of inspirational, horrible tales from the future. (laughs) (laughs) So sort of cautionary tales, what not to do. Yeah. Better pay attention or else. (laughs) Or else we're doomed. (laughs) Or else we ought. No big deal. We're just doomed. We're just doomed, yeah. Though, well, I do, though I do love the outfits on Star Trek. If we could get one thing from the future, <laughs> I would love, like, Ahura's dress. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, that'd be good. Um, but that's mm, may, maybe space travel. Maybe. But I kind of <laughs> think we should fix our own planet first. That's If I can go off on a little bit of a rant about the movie Interstellar. Oh, yes, please. please. Oh, God, I did not like that movie. Please I did go not ahead. Like, oh, my gosh, that movie. Uh, I was like, it felt like time stopped in the movie. I was like, we're in the fifth dimension. We are frozen here <laughs> And we're stuck with Matthew we're McConaughey. Stuck. Exactly. <laughs> and so, I mean, that movie, I think, uh, was really, the whole basic premise of that film was upsetting to me. If you haven't seen it, the film is basically... Like, there's massive climate change on Earth. Everything is dust, horrible dust. The fields have turned to dust. And so a, a band of, of can-do scientists sort of make a rocket ship to send humans to another planet to try and colonize another planet. And there are somehow, like, four or five hours of mishaps in the middle there. <laughs> and but the, the, but the whole framing idea of it is we, could, we should use science to find another planet to colonize. And I'm like, guys, why don't you use your science to try and fix our own planet? That's, I thought that that was going to be like the thrilling conclusion of the film is that actually <laughs> <laughs> we figured out a way to, to improve our own atmosphere and our own like way of approaching um, agriculture that's more sustainable. We we've, don't need to go to space after all. Uh, that was not the point of the film. But then, but then Jessica Chastain wouldn't get a chance to ugly cry on camera. <laughs> Can't so. she ugly cry over like the carbon <laughs> in the atmosphere? <laughs> Apparently not. Apparently not. I want you to re-edit Interstellar because <laughs> I haven't seen it, and I only want to watch your re-envisioning of it. Sarah. No, I, I felt I felt a lot better about Interstellar once I imagined it to be a a group of five short films. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that helped me like it a little bit more. But anyway, <laughs> well, to possibly. End our discussion on more of a hopeful <laughs> note, not in uh, the, the dust and Jessica Chastain's tears. There was um, one quote uh, that I wanted to get your feedback on, because to me, it's really bold and hopeful and uh, says a lot about this whole the importance of visionary fiction. And it's the mission statement of Walida Imarisha and Adrian Marie Brown and Octavia's brood. And they write, we believe it is our right and responsibility to write ourselves into the future. And that to me sounds quite promising and hopeful. And I just wanted to get your take on that. Yeah, I think that's a really beautiful statement that that sums up a couple things. And one is just 
a, a general lack of of diversity of representation in fiction, including science fiction, um, where a lot of of people these days, especially people of color, are saying we're not represented in these stories. We need to make our own stories to tell to make sure that sort of race isn't is isn't an absent artifact in the future. Or oftentimes there's science fiction movies and film and books where almost everybody in the movie or book is white. And you're like, wait, how is this the future? That's, that's what happened here. That's weird. Um, and then the other aspect of that that's more philosophical is that to write ourselves into the future, as they say, is we should try and imagine the kinds of societies and the kinds of um, cultures that we want to exist in in the future. And I think science fiction is a great tool for that. And that visionary fiction is a great tool for that because we can imagine sort of what is the future world that we want to have. And can we write fiction about that now that gets people thinking and get and frees up people's imaginations to sort of look at the world and all the horrible things that are going on in it now and think, how can we change this? What can a better future look like? Well, and your answer, too, touched on something that we didn't directly ask you about, but that we talk about all of the time on the podcast, which is what happens and how things change when you bring more diversity to the table and more perspectives. And that came to mind when you were talking about Ursula K. Le Guin writing about, you know, this futuristic theme of gender and what that means. What would it mean to not have gender? And the fact that we have a woman of color, Octavia Butler, who is touching on all of these themes. So how does science fiction change when you bring more diversity to the table? It sounds like it only gets better and better. And that's actually a central theme of Octavia Butler's books. A, sort of a central idea around a lot of her books is that diversity uh, helps society. That instead of squashing diversity or saying we need, we need a one-track vision for how this should go, which is often how a lot of science fiction is oriented, where there's like, you know, one, one surviving hero who saves the world um, by, by doing some sort of courageous, violent act, like blowing up the Death Star, Instead of saying it's on, it's on this one guy to save the world or it's on this one surviving government to, to change society, a lot of what Octavia Butler's writing is about is how diversity actually makes us stronger. She actually has a, uh, a great vampire science fiction novel um, called Fledgling, which is about uh, a group of vampires. And uh, they, their whole idea is that the, the mixing of sort of different abilities, such as vampire abilities, uh, with, with, human, with nor- normal human abilities makes the, makes the society stronger. But people are afraid of it, and they don't like change, and they don't like new ideas, and they don't like the idea of sort of uh, a, a decentralized course of action that doesn't have a specific clear plan that ends in blowing something up. And so people often fear that. And so Octavia Butler, a lot of the writing, a lot of her work centers around, oh, a diversity of ideas and a diversity of biology can help make our whole culture stronger. I don't want to make you repeat yourself, but I would love to hear some recommendations for books or TV or movies or comic books or anything um, that you feel would really make an impression on science fiction newbies or visionary fiction newbies who are looking to sort of get a start reading this genre. Whew, okay, this is a tough task because there's so much good stuff out there. So I'm just going to talk about what I like. And 
you, you two already mentioned that uh, you've seen the movie Alien. I like Alien a lot. I think that's a good place to start uh, with the tales of Ellen Ripley. Um, I think I also, I, I like to read a lot of books. And so I would recommend the three authors that we've talked about today. Ursula Le Guin, um, her book, The Left Hand of Darkness, or the one I talked about on the show today, The Dispossessed, are both great. Um, and then uh, Octavia Butler um, my favorite book of hers is called The Parable of the Sower, and I think that's a really good place to start. It's a, it's a really interesting story that grabs you about dystopian future L.A. and how a young girl sort of manages to survive in, in a hellish culture there. Um, and then Margaret Atwood, uh, who wrote the book A Handmaid's Tale, and I also love her work uh, Oryx and Crake. I would I would recommend all three of those authors um, for people who are new to science fiction and want to check something out. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Great. I know that I am adding, after talking to you and reading up for this episode, I am adding so many books and movies to my list. Yeah, we do a summer book episode every year on the podcast. And we might just have to make it sci-fi theme this year, Caroline. Yeah. If only to make sure that we read all of this stuff and also get input from our listeners because I know that we have some sci-fi fans listening right now. Yeah, as much as I reread Ender's Game, there is more out there. <laughs> well, Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing all of your knowledge with us. Was there anything about sci-fi, visionary fiction, social justice that we didn't specifically ask you about but that you would like to add? I think you covered it pretty well. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> we think you covered it pretty well, Sarah. <laughs> well, Sarah, if people want to learn more about you, about bitch and propaganda, where can they go to find out more? Oh, I think the best place to go is our website, bitchmedia.org. Um, and you can listen to the podcast. If you go to iTunes and you just look up Bitch Radio, which is fun to type in, uh, you can see the podcast. It comes out every week we have a new show and it's all about feminism pop culture so movies books tv music from a feminist perspective um if people like your show our show deals with a lot of the same issues and i think people will like it because i like your show i love it so yeah and we like propaganda so they will love it listeners you have <laughs> no choice now other than to go and listen to propaganda and check out bitch media which again we cite all of the time all the time on the podcast so thanks again, Sarah. Hey, thank you so much, you two. So now, listeners, I know there are some science fiction fans out there, and we want to hear from you. Who is your favorite science fiction author or your favorite sci-fi title or series? And do you think that science fiction or visionary fiction can possibly change the world? Let us know all of your thoughts. MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you when we come right back from a quick break. So we've got a couple of letters to share about our Stalking 101 episode because we keep getting so many of them and really want to keep everybody informed about the kind of feedback uh, that we've been getting. So here is one from Amy who writes, like basically every listener, I'm always looking for a reason to contact you amazing ladies. And finally, here's one, a super depressing one, but still. I work as a criminal prosecutor and listened with great interest to your discussion about protective orders for victims of stalking. 
I strongly encourage victims to brave the bureaucracy and get a protective order. Here's why. The burden of proof for a protective order is much lower than it is for a criminal charge. Proving something beyond a reasonable doubt is much more difficult than proving something to a preponderance of the evidence. That means it's going to be easier for a victim to get an SPO than it is for me to prove a stalking charge. In addition, many state stalking laws include elements that are incredibly difficult to prove and won't apply in many stalking cases. For example, some states require that we show a victim was in fear of death or physical in injury based on the stalker's conduct, which may not be present in every case as your podcast explained. However, most states also have a statute against violating a stalking protective order, and those are generally much, much easier to prove, especially where a victim is diligent in collecting information about her stalker's continued contacts with her. Then, all we need is the order and the proof of the contact, and we're good to go. Thus, if a victim gets an SPO and it's violated, we can prove that more easily than a stalking charge and give the victim some measure of protection through a criminal conviction, like jail time, probation, or continued no-contact orders. Getting protective orders can be really intimidating, but many communities have domestic violence shelters that employ legal advocates who can help victims wade through the paperwork and understand the court process. I always encourage victims to seek that assistance if available and to persevere. Thank you so much for your work. And thank you for your work and for your insight, Amy. We really appreciate it. Well, I have an email here from Katrin. Uh, she says, I'm a first-time listener and Stalking 101 prompted me to email you and let you know about my own experience with stalking and how my roommate and I got the big kiss off, as my father, a former police officer, calls it. My roommate had made friends with a gentleman who was from Japan. I should also note that at the time she had a boyfriend and I didn't. She and I had met studying abroad there and enjoyed making friends from that location to practice our language skills. After having been friends with him for a few months, he ended up in a roommateless situation and needed a place to crash. He asked if he could crash on our couch for two weeks while he looked for a new apartment. Uh, our third roommate and I had no problem with it because we often had various friends from random countries or states crashing while they visited the city we lived in. In terms of a temporary roommate, he was pretty terrible, but in normal ways. Messy, played music too loud, too late at night, but he never actually seemed strange. It wasn't until the two weeks was up and he had left that we got suspicious. At the time, we'd been talking about where she and I were going to live once our lease was up. He would often be around when we were talking about it and somehow misunderstood and thought we would all live together. Her boyfriend ended up kicking him out for us. Soon after that, she started to receive texts saying she should be with him instead of with her boyfriend. He also texted me things like, hey, what's up, which I would ignore. It progressively got weirder. First, he accused me of not being his friend and he kept declaring his love for her. Then he started to say he wanted to be with me and I should date him. We both received threats of rape and violence, although hers were far worse than mine. Finally, we went to the police station and told the officer what was going on and that we wanted to file a restraining order. He asked if either of us were romantically involved with him and we said no, and I could tell he didn't believe us. He then informed us the guy would have had to actually come on our property and physically assault us to file a police report, but we could actually go to the courthouse and file a restraining order, but without a police report, it costs $300 to file one. So we never did, and we did eventually move, and new phones make it really easy to block people, so it's worked out. Every time he changes his number, though, I do get a call or text from him, but I just block it. My father, the retired cop, said that if we had asked for the officer's badge number or to talk to his superior officer and showed him the text and tell him it was a threat of bodily harm, which is illegal, we could have gotten it filed, so I thought that might be good information for your listeners. 
And it is Katrin. And so thank you so much for writing in. We appreciate it. And thanks to everybody who's written in to us. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with this one, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. And be sure to check out Sarah Merck and Propaganda over at bitchmedia.org as well. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 